Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. And now, your true crime headlines. A trial is underway in Chicago for two gang members accused of the execution-style murder of a nine-year-old boy in 2015. Two juries were seated to hear the case against Corey Morgan and Dwight Boone Doty, who are accused of murdering nine-year-old Tyshawn Lee in 2015 in what prosecutors have described as a retaliatory execution of the son of a rival gang member. Both juries will observe the trial and each jury will render a verdict for their respective defendant. A month before the Chicago fourth grader was murdered, the brother and mother of one of his accused killers were shot by members of a rival gang, which included the father of young Tyshawn Lee. Corey Morgan, whose brother was killed and mother injured in that shooting, vowed that he would seek revenge and set his sights on his rival's young son. On the day that Tyshawn Lee was murdered, he left his house after school to go back to the park and play basketball. Corey Morgan and Dwight Boone Doty spotted the young boy at the park still in his school uniform, and Boone Doty approached and struck up a conversation with the child. He lured him into a nearby alley with the promise that he would buy him a juice box. Once they got into the alley, Dwight Boone Doty shot Tyshawn Lee twice in the head at point-blank range before escaping into a waiting getaway car. Attorneys for both men are trying to pin the blame on the other. Both men are accused of first-degree murder and could face life in prison if convicted. A third man, Kevin Edwards, who prosecutors say acted as the getaway driver, pled guilty last month to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years. Former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger has been found guilty of murder in the killing of her neighbor last year. Geiger had just finished a 13 and a half hour shift when she entered the apartment of 26 year old Botham Jean, who was sitting on his sofa watching television and eating ice cream. She later told responding officers that she believed that she was in her own apartment, located one floor below Jean's, and that she shot the man believing that he was an intruder. Over the course of the week-long trial, prosecutors highlighted for the jury several visual cues that Geiger had missed, including a bright red doormat placed in front of Jean's apartment. Geiger's own apartment had no doormat. They also read salacious text messages between Geiger and her married partner on the police force, with whom she was having an affair. Geiger had been on the phone with her partner in the minutes before she entered Jean's apartment, and in the moments after the shooting, she texted her partner while waiting for emergency personnel to arrive, rather than attempting to render aid to the dying man. The jury deliberated for five hours before arriving at a unanimous guilty verdict. Geiger faces a sentence of up to 99 years in prison. Clueless star and former conservative commentator Stacy Dash was arrested after an altercation with her husband at their Florida home. Dash called 911 to report that her husband had assaulted her and put her in a chokehold during an argument. Responding officers observed red marks and scratches on her husband 
and arrested Dash, 52, on a charge of domestic battery. Dash was released on $500 bail. Dash worked as a commentator for Fox News from 2014 to 2017 and later considered running for Congress in 2018. In legal documents filed in the case, Dash reported that she is indignant and unable to afford an attorney. A judge granted her request for a public defender and has ordered Dash to provide proof of her income. Those were your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Christopher Porco. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Christopher Porco. On November 15, 2004, in the early hours of the morning, Peter Porco, a 52-year-old State Appellate Division Court clerk, and Joan Porco, a 54-year-old speech pathologist, were asleep in their home in Del Mar, New York, when an intruder entered their home. The assailant took an axe, disabled the security alarm, climbed up the stairs, entered the couple's bedroom, and brutally attacked them as they lay defenseless in bed. When the intruder was satisfied that his work was done, he dropped the axe on the bed and walked out. But Peter, sometime in the early morning after the attack, regained consciousness. Peter got up and started to get ready for work. He put on some clothes over his wounds. He went to the bathroom and attempted to shave. He then went downstairs to the kitchen and loaded the dishwasher. Horrifyingly, Peter was going about his morning routine like a ghost, leaving a trail of blood all over the house as his wife lay dying in their bed. Peter's brain was on autopilot. His neocortex, which controls higher brain function, was badly damaged in the attack. But his underlying paleocortex, which guides instinct and habits, was intact. He even made breakfast. Peter then went outside to get the morning paper, but the front door locked behind him. Peter took the spare house key that was hidden in a flower pot and let himself back in, leaving the key in the door as he finally succumbed to his injuries. He lost consciousness from blood loss and died just inside the door. When Peter Porco failed to show up for a trial the following day, his co-workers were concerned. And at their request, court police were sent to the Porco's home to check on him. But as the first officer approached the house, he knew before he entered that something was wrong. A key was in the Porco's front door, and the door was slightly ajar. The officer looked inside, there on the floor, 
at the bottom of the stairs was the body of Peter Porco, his head bludgeoned, laying in a pool of blood. Upstairs, police found Joan, barely clinging to life in the couple's blood-soaked bed. Joan was missing an eye and part of her skull. Her jaw was crushed, her brain was visible. Her face severely disfigured, and her arms were covered in defense wounds. But Joan was alive. Paramedics attempted to give Joan oxygen, but they couldn't find her mouth. Joan had been struck in the head with the axe three times. Peter, 16. As paramedics worked to save Joan, Detective Chris Bodish arrived on the scene. Bodish knew the Porcos. He had met the family before. Two years earlier, Bodish had been called to the home by Joan and Peter Porco. They had been broken into, and two laptops were stolen. But Detective Bodish knew immediately that this was not the scene of a robbery. There was no sign of forced entry, and no valuables had been taken. To Detective Bodish, this attack looked like the work of a friend or a family member. Bodish approached Joan and asked her five questions. First, Bodish asked Joan if she could hear him. She nodded, yes. Did a family member do this to you? Everyone in the room watched. Another nod from Joan confirmed, yes. Detective Bodish knew the couple had two adult sons. 23-year-old Jonathan Porco was a lieutenant on a U.S. Navy submarine, and 21-year-old Christopher Porco was a student at the University of Rochester, three hours away. Did Jonathan do this? He asked. Joan shook her head. No. Did Christopher do this? Joan nodded. Yes. Detective Bodish asked her again. Christopher did this? Joan again nodded. Yes. Paramedics rushed Joan to the hospital, where she was immediately sent to surgery and slipped into a coma. Police began searching for her son, Christopher Porco. But Christopher was 200 miles away. According to his story, he was alone in his dorm room when a reporter called. The reporter, he said, called Christopher to ask for a comment on the murder of his parents. Christopher said that this was the first he'd heard of the attack. He then called the police department, who confirmed what the reporter had told him, but informed Christopher that his mother was, in fact, still alive and in the hospital. That's on police dispatcher, Saginor. 
Hi. Uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information for me. Hey, Chris. What about Saria? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay. Are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or...? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. Christopher left the university in Rochester and rushed back to Del Mar. As surgeons attempted to reconstruct Joan's face and skull, Christopher Porco was taken to the police station and questioned for six hours. Your mother is communicating, Detective Bodish told Christopher. Okay, he replied. The detective added, she's saying you were there at the house. I don't know why she would say that, Christopher replied. Bodish pressed. She knows what happened. But Christopher didn't flinch. I hope she does. I was not there. Christopher told Detective Bodish that he was sleeping in the lounge of his dormitory at the time of the attacks. I love my parents dearly, he told police. Christopher Porco cooperated fully, consenting to have DNA samples taken and to a full physical examination. But there wasn't a mark on him. Forensic analysis of the crime scene found no fingerprints and no blood other than the victims in the house or on the murder weapon. Investigators checked Christopher's yellow Jeep for traces of blood, but it was clean. When police looked for evidence of whether Christopher had driven his yellow Jeep on the highway on the night of the murders, they found no record of his easy pass going through the toll that night. Then, a new lead came in. Peter Porco had once received a death threat from a man who had lost custody of his children in a case before the New York State Supreme Court. The man had vowed to shoot Peter Porco and the judge. But when detectives investigated the threat, they found that the man had an airtight alibi. There was also a theory involving a family member who had been jailed for organized crime. A former loan shark named Frank, Frankie the Fireman, Porco, a great uncle of Peter's. Police thought that maybe Frankie the Fireman had been considering ratting on his associates. Perhaps Peter was murdered with the fireman's axe as a warning not to talk. But Frankie Porco was in jail specifically because he refused to cooperate, so the theory fell apart. Police followed lead after lead. All were dead ends, 
But while they still had no physical evidence against Christopher Porco, investigators now believed that they had discovered his motive. Peter and Joan Porco had recently taken out life insurance policies, totaling $1.1 million. And Christopher had recently sought out investment advice from a financial counselor. He told them that he was about to inherit millions of dollars from a relative. Then investigators learned that before the security system in the Porco home was smashed, the code had been typed in to deactivate the alarm. The attacker had smashed it in order to cover his tracks. The case against Christopher Porco was coming together. Three weeks after the attack, Joan Porco woke up. But now Joan said that she had no memory of the attack. In fact, Joan now insisted that Christopher was innocent. But Detective Bodish hadn't forgotten. He and everyone who had been in that room saw Joan confirm that her son Christopher had been her attacker. Either Joan had suffered memory loss due to her traumatic injuries, or she was protecting her son. But she herself had pointed the finger at Christopher Porco, and police were not about to just let it go. Joan Porco wrote a desperate letter for publication in the Albany Times Union, defending her son Christopher's innocence. I am absolutely positive that my son Christopher was in no way involved with this heinous crime. I implore the Bethlehem police and the district attorney's office to leave my son alone and to search for Peter's real killer, or killers, so that he can rest in peace and my sons and I can live in safety. The Albany County District Attorney said of Joan Porco's position, it's not uncommon for victims of certain crimes to not wish to cooperate with law enforcement or not to agree with the direction of an investigation. We have victims of domestic violence who often display those same sentiments. In this case, Mrs. Porco certainly has our sympathy, but we are going to continue along in our investigation until we bring a person to justice for her and the death of her husband. The year-long investigation occupied detectives statewide. Police probed more than 600 leads, but all of the evidence pointed to Christopher. On Friday, November 5th, 2005, almost a year after the attacks, Christopher Porco was indicted for the murder of his father, Peter Porco, and the attempted murder of his mother, Joan. The investigation attracted so much media attention that the trial was moved 100 miles outside of Albany in an attempt to avoid a biased jury. On Wednesday, June 28, 2006, Christopher Porco's trial began. 
Joan Porco walked in, arm and arm, with her son, and maintained her belief in his innocence throughout the trial. The prosecution argued that Christopher Porco's pattern of behavior was consistent with psychopathy or sociopathy. Christopher Porco had staged several burglaries of his parents' home over the years, stealing their electronics and selling them on eBay. Christopher then failed to mail the items and posed as his own brother, sending emails to customers explaining that his brother had died and that he was unable to deliver the items. Christopher was failing school and had forged his college transcripts. He lied to fellow students, telling them that he came from a rich family with oceanfront homes. Christopher even applied for a $32,000 loan using his father's name and social security number. In an email sent a week before the crime, Joan Porco confronted Christopher. Dad and I are very upset about you not communicating with us. We don't know if you are well or mentally stable. Dad is about to have a nervous breakdown. Do you understand that you are not behaving responsibly? Peter also wrote to his son, Did you forge my signature as co-signer? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. I'm calling Citibank this morning to find out what you have done and I'm going to tell them that I'm not to be on it as co-signer. Peter then found out that Christopher had also taken out a line of credit from Citibank to finance his yellow Jeep Wrangler, again using his father's name. Michelle McKay, a law clerk who worked with Peter Porco, testified that she recalled Peter himself describing his youngest son as a sociopath. Peter again wrote an email to his son. I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability, and that applies to the Citibank College loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loan. We may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. On Monday, July 24th, Christopher's older brother, Jonathan Porco, took the stand. The naval lieutenant told the jury that an axe kept in the family's garage appeared to be the axe used to attack his parents. The prosecution's theory was that after Christopher had racked up enormous amounts of debt pretending to be a rich kid, Christopher realized that his parents' life insurance might be the solution to all of his problems. Do you know if you or your brother were the beneficiaries of your mother and father's will? The prosecution asked. Yes, I did know if either my mother or father died, one of us would be the beneficiaries, said Jonathan. Was your brother Christopher ever a part of these conversations? Yes, Jonathan said, because we would probably talk about it over dinner. Jonathan then explained to the jury 
that the security alarm system was installed in his parents' home after a burglary during Thanksgiving weekend of 2002, and that only the immediate family knew the four-digit code. Jonathan never looked at his brother Christopher during his testimony. Dad was a hard-working guy who loved the law, and he was a good father, Jonathan Porco said. The prosecution presented their timeline. At 10.30 p.m. on November 14th, Christopher Porco got into his yellow Jeep Wrangler and left the university campus in full view of surveillance cameras. At 11 p.m., the yellow Jeep Wrangler passed through the toll on the highway, and Christopher Porco paid cash in an attempt to avoid being detected through the scanning of his Easy Pass. But analysis of DNA found on a ticket confirmed it was Christopher's. At 2.14 a.m., Christopher Porco entered his parents' home and deactivated the security system by typing in the passcode only known to family. He then smashed the keypad in an attempt to avoid detection. Sometime later, Christopher found his father's axe, walked upstairs to his parents' bedroom, and attacked, brutally murdering his father Peter with 16 blows to the head, but failing to kill his mother Joan, who he struck three times. At 4.59 a.m., Christopher then cut the phone line, exited the house, and drove away in his yellow Jeep. And at 8.30 a.m., Christopher's yellow Jeep Wrangler was captured again on surveillance cameras returning to campus. Over 200 neighbors in the vicinity were interviewed after the crime took place. One of them testified that he saw Christopher's yellow Jeep parked in the driveway on the night of the murder. Christopher Porco's defense claimed that Christopher was in the dormitory lounge on the night of the murders and had fallen asleep on the couch. Christopher Porco's defense claimed that Christopher was in the dormitory lounge on the night of the murders and had fallen asleep on the couch. But nine of Christopher's college friends testified that they had been in the lounge watching a movie that night and Christopher wasn't there. Even after hearing all of the damning evidence naming her son as her attacker and her husband's murderer, when Joan Porco finally took the stand, she never wavered in support of her son. I did not think that he was mentally ill, Joan said when asked about the email that she had written to Christopher just days before the attack. On breaks during her testimony, Joan walked over to Christopher at the defense table, smiling at her son, talking, ever the affectionate and protective mother. When asked again if she remembered the attack, Joan simply said, No, I think because of the brain damage that I had amnesia. 
Christopher Porco never testified during his trial, nor did he show any emotion. And on August 10, 2006, after a seven-week trial and the testimony of more than 80 witnesses, Christopher Porco was found guilty. On December 12, 2006, Judge Jeffrey Berry sentenced Christopher to 50 years to life in prison. Judge Berry said, I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15th is something that could happen again. Christopher Porco is serving his sentence in Clinton Correctional Facility and will be eligible for parole in December of 2052. Joan Porco still believes that her son is innocent. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. And now, for 24-hour early access ad-free and bonus episodes, check out Murder Minute on Himalaya.